Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 221 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Jen Beener. She's an SLP with expertise in communication and swallowing disorders in adults with developmental and intellectual disabilities. She's an employee of Access Communication and Therapy, and prior to joining the new frontier of teletherapy, she worked in residential and vocational settings for adults with developmental disabilities. Jen is a proud two-time ASHA ACE Award recipient and has furthered her education in dysphagia through completion of the Advanced Certification in Pediatric Dysphagia at New York Medical College. Jen has presented to clinicians at the local and state level, as well as students at the graduate and undergraduate level on the topic of dysphagia in adults with developmental and intellectual disabilities. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Jen. Good morning. How are you? Thank you so much for joining me. I'm wonderful. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Yeah. All right. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Um, My name is Jen Beener. I'm a speech pathologist from New Jersey. I went to school in New York. I've spent a lot of time specializing in working with adults with developmental disabilities and building a passion there, but I've worked with other populations, uh, kids, adults. I, I enjoy pretty much anything related to dysphagia and feeding. Awesome. Awesome. I know. Gosh, Jen, I feel like I've known you like forever. Yeah. We met like many, many, many <laughs> years ago. And then I know you were like one of the first members of the collective, but I've always resonated well with Jen because I have a brother with cerebral palsy um, that lives in a group home. And then I also have my son with chromosomal abnormalities that I've talked about before. So I'm always sort of, Jen and I are you know, always chatting about different things. And then obviously COVID through so many, what am I trying to say? Roller coaster. Yeah, there's just, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So many things to talk about there. So yeah. So where, where do you want to start, Jen? Um, I guess we'll just start with a brief introduction of, you know, adults with developmental disabilities as it's a unique population. A lot of people don't have experience that's dedicated to that population. And when they do encounter somebody, maybe it's, you know, once every few months or they're in a setting where they don't feel prepared. The, the story that we kind of connected about over Twitter in 2017 was a story about a young man with cerebral palsy who was admitted to the hospital with bronchitis and had lived in the same group home for 20 years. And his hospital course and his treatment basically jeopardized his living, his living circumstances and his environment. The timing of that was very interesting because, you know, we chatted on Twitter about that and found out we were both going to critical thinking and dysphagia management. And it just kind of opened my eyes to like, we don't really understand disabilities. And we also don't really understand normal physiology that well. 
And I think they're kind of two sides of the same coin. And that with disabilities, we're constantly trying to compare people to this metric of something that we want it to be standardized. We want it to be exact and look like the textbook physiology and look like the textbook anatomy and look like the MBS we all saw in grad school of some grad student in Floro. So while I was also coming there working with adults with developmental disabilities, I'm like, wow, okay, I have to take a huge step back and kind of look a little more like holistically. And I really appreciated like that eye-opening experience, like just questioning, like, do we know what normal anatomy and physiology are? Is <laughs> Do we know what normal anatomy and physiology are? And do we know how to say that something is truly an impairment? And when I started bringing a lot of my patients from a residential facility to swallow studies, I would see all, I mean, nothing looked like what I saw in grad school, nothing from just getting the food to the mouth, the feeding looked different, oral transit looked different, even the pharyngeal swallow looked different, yet someone was functional. And I had to kind of just shake myself and be like, this is their normal. You can compare this person to this person but it's going to be very difficult to compare them to someone else that was typically developed and didn't have their unique developmental trajectory. Yeah. So working with this population was very like freeing in a way, because I got to kind of challenge some conventions I think that I built up and, and you have to, you, you have to start with rules. I think to learn it's like when kids develop language, they over, What's that phrase? Over-regularize. Like I, I take the cookie and then they, you know, they kind of finely tune things. Oh, I took the cookie because it's this grammatical exception, except they're not actually thinking all of that. They just pick up on it. Um, and I think it's similar with clinical learning. It's like we do need rules and, and patterns to kind of follow, but you also need to know when to kind of step back and realize like, okay, it's not as black and white as I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, going through all of this that I, that I've gone through with my brother is, is sort of really where I decided that I'm going to die on the evidence-based practice triad hill, basically. <laughs> and, and I say that because I remember he had, he had a, you know, video fluoroscopic solo study. I don't even know how long ago it was, maybe 10 years ago, maybe. Um, it was right when I was first starting in the field. So it had to have been even longer than that. But anyways, um, I just remember getting this, this report, you know, I was looking it over with my mom, looking at this report and then just seeing the recommendations of pureed. And I think they did recommend some thickened liquids. And I just remember at the time it being like this wildfire, like, Oh my gosh, now all of a sudden he can only have pureed food. And, you know, my parents, he would come home to my parents' house on the weekend. So now everything had to be pureed at home. Um, at the school, everything had to be pureed at the group home, everything had to be pureed. So it was like this whole thing of like, oh my gosh, he's now on, you know, this pureed diet. And, you know, my mom was like, but I don't know. Like he's been eating soft foods. Like he loves pasta. Like this just doesn't make sense. And it was all because some, you know, some nurse had suggested that he get a swallow study, which I'm 100% in support of. What I'm not, what I wasn't in support of was just these blanket diet recommendations, which I, you know, we all, we all talk about that all the time, but to see it happen in real time. And then also have my mom say, you know, but I just don't think he needs that. So it was sort of like, we had to take, you know, my, obviously my, my parents, you know, expertise with working, living with him, you know, his entire life, but then he also never had an aspiration pneumonia because of it too, you know? So this is where all the pieces to the evidence-based triad puzzle come into play because yes, he, he literally is a functional aspirator. Um, and, and yeah, it's, I actually just went through, um, we just actually took my son for a swallow study. When was that? About two weeks ago. Um, and I thought it was going to be honest. I thought it was going to be worse than it was. Um, I mean, we just saw some penetration on him, but like, I mean, if you see him eating, it's a disaster a lot of times. I mean, just a straight up disaster. So it's, there's so many pieces to the puzzle of working with this population that, that like you said, we can't just compare normal to normal. We have to compare their normal to their normal also. Yeah. And the, the functional aspirator, I remember having that conversation during one of the seminar break. And I think, uh, Karen Scheffler was there too. We were talking about like chronic aspiration. It's like there are people who are probably tolerating it. And 
and I, I toy with this idea in my head and I, I don't know how it would form as a research question, but people um, with developmental disability, particularly CP, where we do suspect that there's chronic trace, like functional aspiration that does not amount into any respiratory infection. If someone else without that medical history, that laundry list of diagnoses, woke up and had that type of aspiration, how would that body tolerate it? And I don't know. I can't answer that. But I I really suspect that someone whose body has developed a certain way from childhood into adulthood, they have developed mechanisms that we potentially don't understand. I think there's probably physiologic compensation that's happening. And it's not a conscious, oh, if I double swallow, I'll do this. Or if I hold my breath, it'll do that. That it's just the body is protecting itself and that someone who was typically developed, they woke up one day and had all those diagnoses and, and quote unquote deficits, they would not be okay. That They would not be managing okay. And right. yeah, like you said about your son eating, like, oh, it looks like a mess from the outside. And sometimes you see it like, wow, okay, that x-ray vision or that fees was really necessary because there was no guessing what was going on on the inside at all. Like there was no one-to-one. And that's why that, you know, the bedsides are very difficult. I've had a lot of my patients made NPO based on a bedside at the hospital. And I'm like, well, they're there for a broken hip. So I don't even know. Why you're in the right. right. <laughs> and I think, I think we had talked about another patient that I had feased. Oh gosh, a few years back. Um, an older man with Down syndrome and same thing. He, he was in the hospital for something completely unrelated and. They want, they brought me in and said that, you know, they needed to get a fees on this guy. And I'm looking through the history, you know, he's had no, no pneumonia. There was literally nothing to suspect dysphagia. And same thing. The nurse said, well, while you guys have him there, you might as well just do a fees. We want to just make sure things are okay. Um, and she had also said, she said, I'm pretty sure we need to get him on thickened liquids. So make sure you try thickened liquids because he's been coughing with thin a lot at the group home. So let's, let's try that. So I remember. He had probably the funkiest swallow, but that was so functional, but that was like his compensatory strategies that he has created and he has lived with his entire life. And it was not a pretty swallow, but it was completely functional. And what was interesting was when I did give him the thickened liquids, it was like his like motor patterns were so thrown off that he would like just gave me these looks, but also like it, he, he didn't trigger a swallow. Like it was silent aspiration with the thick and liquid. It was the, it was the wildest thing I had seen as a clinician, but also as someone that works and lives with, you know, people with developmental disabilities very closely because I was like, this is my point. Like we cannot make these blanket recommendations for someone just based on what we see on the outside, there's so many pieces to this puzzle. And it's such a team decision too, because, you know, I feel like if we put this patient on thickened liquids, he would not have tolerated it to begin with. I don't know, you know, if he would have thrown the liquids, I don't know what he would have done, but he was, could not have been more appalled and angry with me <laughs> that, I, that I gave him those. But um, I'm just was seeing this whole downward spiral of, of dehydration and, and, you know, even as, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, it was, it was an awesome conversation that I did end up having with the nurse at the group home. And I just explained all, you know, that it's so multifaceted. And honestly, I think my words to her were like, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Like he's never had pneumonia before. The only reason you guys wanted me to do the fees was just to have baseline data. So now you have baseline data. And and I don't think we change anything because of this baseline oh, data. Those routine baseline studies for this population, I have such a love hate. So one of the so I had two patients that attended a day program I was at and they lived in the same group home. And the primary that worked with that group home group home really believed in routine video fluoroscopy, like every two years, but every two years they got downgraded. But I'm like, these ladies haven't changed. So I'm like I don't have a problem with routine, but if it's not done in the context, as you described that this is their function, this is them, this is how they compensate, then it's not routine. Then you are looking, it's comfort. I think confirmation bias is very strong in our field. Like, Oh, we got the camera on them. So we're going to find the problem and we need to just be okay. Not understanding something, being okay with just very objective and descriptive language. I remember reading a report, a report 
for someone with developmental disabilities before I really knew the patient very well, like an old study. And it was like, um, you know, patient uh, tilted head back in order to assist with AP transit of the bolus. Okay. I was like, I didn't think anything of it. And there's just like an old study in her terms. Okay. And then I got to know her better. I'm like, she's doing that all day long. She's sitting and listening to music and she's, you know, kind of throwing her head back and laughing and tilting her head back. I'm like, that was actually a, an interpretation of a behavior that wasn't necessarily accurate. We can't say she's doing that in order to, you know, assist in AP transit of the bolus. She's doing that all the time. Is it reflexive? Is it voluntary? Is it involuntary? Is it aptitude? Like, I don't know. Maybe neurologists would have a better idea. But it's like, we, we saw it during the meal. And during, it's not even a meal. It's a snapshot during the video. So it's like, oh, so therefore it has to do with feeding. So I... I like to just talk to people about like idiosyncratic behaviors and things you might see. And it's so important to talk to the caregivers. And I think especially like, I don't know how old your brother is, but your parents have been navigating a system that is difficult for healthy children. Yeah. And typically developed children. Yeah. 40. Yeah. So, you know, his coming of age, your parents had even less resources than there are now. And I, in, you know, in jobs I've had this population, I've worked with parents whose children are in their eighties. I were, I was counseling a mom who was 101. Oh my gosh. About her, about oh my her gosh. six year old daughter. I'm like, I'm like, where are the cameras? This is insane. I wasn't yeah. prepared for this. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it should be the other way around. Like I should be working with the adult child and the, the elderly grandmother. And so, you know, that relationship, these, the, the parents have to the healthcare system and the education system has changed so much. And I, I think overall has changed for the better, but they have had to fight tooth and nail for, I feel like for everything for the kids and, and fought to be understood. And we still don't understand things. And I think a lot of judgment gets placed on the parents. And I think for me, that's why I, I dove into learning more about pediatric dysphagia because I felt like it, helps answer a lot more questions for me clinically about how to work with this population because of that relationship that the parents have. Yes. With their child is, and, and using the term feeding dyad, which I think is more appropriate for our adults who are dependent for feeding like that. You can't do any sort of treatment without involving the person feeding. Yep. It's just, you really can't, but also the environment and what the what the system that they're working within looks like and how they've learned to compensate. And like, I guess like, like helping the clinician kind of weed through those difficult questions. I think the pediatric literature kind of helps prepare us more. Someone's going to work with this population or has a patient, like, for example, like let's, you know, in your brother's case, your mom says, well, for, you know, 30 or for 20 years, I've made him pasta rather than the clinician being like, Oh my God, like that's terrible. Like he's going to choke. Doesn't she know that? I'd be like, how do you make your pasta? You know, like maybe they find out your mom only makes certain noodles. Yep. Yep. Like maybe only does like, um, pastina or lasagna noodles, not like stringy ones. Maybe she overcooks it a little bit. Maybe she's like, well, I actually cook it in broth and I use a lot of sauce. Like I think like the, the counseling and, and not that adult literature doesn't have good counseling. There's great resources, but I think the pediatric where we have really good resources on how to talk about food and meal times for the dyad and meal prep. And like, you know, cause we, we see children with a lot of picky eating and food restrictions, things like that. So like you can ask those really like esoteric specific questions and learn like, Oh, okay. Actually he only eats pasta um, for dinner when he's most alert or he only eats lasagna. So it has noodles, but it's also very moist. Like, picking that apart rather than at the face of it being like, no, he needs puree and they're being irresponsible parents. And it's yeah, like, yeah, no, I, I love so that. much judgment about feeding and food. And yeah, I love that perspective so much, Jen, because honestly, like my brother loves ice cream, which cool. Great. And, and, you know, battling with, uh, with both my brother and my son with their gaining, keeping weight on them for so many years. And so my mom would just feed him ice cream for a snack at night just to get calories in him. And he loves it. And so then, I remember when they were talking about thickening his liquids and he wouldn't get ice cream anymore. It was like, no, like this is literally what's keeping the weight on this child. Like, 
So I just remember that being such a, such a big deal too. But I want to go back to what you said, cause I, I'm going to have my son's SLP come on here sometime soon. Oh my gosh. I, I know. I, I, I just, I love her. I adore That's her, awesome. but she, she, she thinks of those things, Jen. She thinks of just the, the questions like that to ask me and also, she knows so much about pediatric development that she'll ask me these things like, have you noticed it? And I'm like, I I never knew that was a thing or like, no, I didn't notice or I didn't pair that with a compensatory strategy. Like, so she's so smart and bright in, in those things that, that exactly what you said, I wish that was something that, you know, obviously in the world of dysphagia, there's so much we wish we knew, but I wish we did have more of that you know, feeding and swallowing development training, because I think that would help so much, like you said, for this population. Yeah. I think that the assessment skills are applicable to dysphagia, cognition, voice, everything. Um, my, like my grad school, New York Medical College, we had a really lovely counseling seminar and just, it wasn't so much in a clinical lens for every lesson. It was just, here's just literally how humans converse and the types of questions we ask. And this is what an open question is. And this is what funneling questions are. And then when you use clinical examples, you can see the reaction can be different based on open-ended questions versus closed-ended questions, depending on the type of information you're trying to get. And I think with this population, like just having and with children too, like, can you tell me, like, describe a typical lunchtime for you guys. You know, what's lunch look like in the home versus like, does he eat this? Does he eat that? Does he struggle with this? And it's, it just depends like what type of information you're trying to get. And for caregivers that have had to just be up against so much, like constantly just giving them the floor to advocate for their child, whether their child is five or 85, just saying, what's, you know, what's a day look like? What do you, what's, what's special to you about the meal? And like, for your, you know, your mom, that ice cream time, it's not just, I mean, it's calories, it's delicious, but it also may have been a special bonding time. At the end of the day, it's quiet. So when we start to, I think, like admonish certain things and take them away, they have this like trickle effect into the rest of the day and the rest of the family and the rest of the group home. And, you know, you affect, you, you put one person MPO feeding to the staff, we'll feed them in the room. So so hook up the tube. You watch TV because they don't think that person should be at the table. And, and that may, that may be the right decision for that person. Maybe being around food would be, would lead them to be very anxious and uncomfortable. But that one clinical decision that happens in maybe 30 seconds in a hospital has now changed the whole outcome of this person's life and also has affected their staff, their relationships with staff, their relationship with their peers um, also NPO is its own six hour, right? right. <laughs> is the issues with NPO status in general, like what does that really, really mean? You know, my understanding is it, it's a, it is always a temporary unless absolutely you have a very, very specific and unique reason that it is not temporary. It's, I think, uh, there's a guilty until proven innocent mindset versus the innocent until proven. Did I say it right? Guilty until proven innocent or innocent until proven guilty with the swallow type mindset. And uh, sometimes like temporary things like puree, nectar thick, or other diet changes, like they're meant to be, someone in their head may say, oh, it's just temporary when they get back to their group home. Someone will follow. No. No, it doesn't happen. They don't have, you know, so that, and the staff are scared. They're scared. If someone was 911 out choking, like, no one is going to be adventurous about that. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's very tough. Like how, how do recommendations get communicated and, and are they interpreted as permanent when really maybe they should have been temporary when I was at my facility? Like we'd have people who <clears throat> we just knew like, all right, they're going to go on puree when they're at the hospital, come home, do a clinical eval right back to whatever they were at. Once we knew, okay, they're hydrated, they're stable, they're upright right back to where they were you know some people the feeding does really tank when other things are you know um affected i had one patient just routinely uti hospitalization seizures change in diet come home good for nine months repeat and we just knew we did swallow studies during different phases of this pattern and we knew okay nectar thick by straw she'd get 
thickened chicken soup through straw so she could self feed because we felt her independence was more important than liberalizing the diet. Because what does liberalizing mean for someone who's always had diet modifications too? I think there's a lot to unpack there. I think we have these like cultural perspectives on what a super liberalized quote unquote, I keep using bunny ears, but it's an audio recording. Um, (laughs) What does a liberalized diet mean for someone who maybe has always had modified food? Are we making it better by just saying, oh, well, everybody wants to eat um, with a fork and knife and a glass of milk on the side of the plate. It's like, well, maybe not. Maybe they want finger foods or maybe they actually do want ice cream every night and not a piece of cake or something. So yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole other tangent. I don't know if we go down that one. Yeah. Cultural, no, I, I love that. Cultural percept- perceptions yeah. of feeding. Yeah. I, I, I love it. Cause I think there's, like you said, there's so much to unpack and there's just so much that we don't acknowledge, or I don't know if it's that, we as SLPs don't want to unpack those conversations, but we sort of have to, you know, or, or were we not trained to do it or do we just not know where to even start with these conversations? But, um, you know, I, I love that you're talking about all of this because I know, like you said, you know, it seems like occasionally if you're not working with this population all the time, it's like someone will say, Oh, I, you know, have a patient with Down syndrome or have a patient with cerebral palsy. Like, where do I even start? You know? And I think what you said, just, just knowing what they're, what, what their regular mealtime is like, you know, just very open-ended questions about what their quote unquote normal looks like. Yeah. And I think also knowing what tools are out there to help guide you through that. They look different than the general population. For example, like a lot of us, we know the aspiration risk factors off the top of our head. They're, they're drilled in and it's very, very useful information. However, we have to look at what they mean. So, for example, dependence for feeding as a risk factor for aspiration, developing an aspiration pneumonia. For someone who's had a typically developed body and a typically developed life, everything about their eating experiences, their independent feeders, they have a stroke in their 80s, and now they are dependent for feeding. That is extremely different than someone who was born with cerebral palsy or another developmental disability, or someone who is simply born with, uh, you know, a, a motor disorder or something, who is always dependent for feeding. That person has learned, and like we talked about before, there may be physiologic compensation that occurs consciously or unconsciously to make mealtime safer for that person. Very different than someone who's fed themselves their entire life. How do you anticipate the spoon when you've never been fed since you were a baby? How do you interact with a caregiver that doesn't know how to feed you because you've never needed to be fed and this person's totally new to you? So I think like dependence for feeding, we're used to thinking that as a risk factor. So we may say, oh, this person has CP and they're dependent for feeding. It's like, but they've been dependent for feeding for 50 years. No, no history of adverse respiratory consequences. So what else are we looking at? So one thing there is some. Uh, research into this population. There's small sample sizes, um, but it's, it's great. It's so great to just open your eyes to what to look at. They talk about decline in skills. So if you have someone with a developmental disability and they're coming to you, let's say in the acute setting or in a SNF and you do get a history, which in a lot of times can be very limited. Um, but if the patient or the family or caregivers can kind of indicate to you what the history has been and there is a significant decline in feeding independence, whatever that looks like for that person. So maybe they did not put the spoon to their mouth physically, but they made choices about the meal or they expressed strong opinions about the food and they had a wide variety of textures that they enjoyed because dependence and texture are not one-to-one. Someone can eat a wide variety of textures, but be physically dependent because they can't, um, they don't have good controlled use of their arms and hands, but they could, have a piece of steak as long as the person feeding them knows how to do it. I love that you said that there, Jen, because I feel like, no, 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 but I, but I, I'll, I'll jump in there. Cause I love what you said that they're, they're not, 
they don't go hand in hand necessarily. And I think so many times SLPs have just given like blanket recommendations, you know, not knowing in it. And I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, doing it. There's no way to, there's no other way to yeah, know. Yeah. It's just, you know, quote unquote, safe swallow precautions or, you know, this patient needs to be fed or this patient needs, you know, small bites, small sip, you know, we, we've all heard the the gamut of those, but I, I love what you said that they, they aren't mutually, you know, exclusive, that they, they can be totally separate. That was such a huge shock to me to see because I started working with this population pretty fresh out of grad school. <laughs> and I was always comfortable in medical settings. I grew up in, in medical settings with uh, parents that are uh, healthcare professionals. So I had seen a lot just peripherally, but, you know, seeing, you know, someone who has Down syndrome or CP or autism or any combination, uh, you know, D, all the above, and their caregiver that knows them for 30 years, powering through a hamburger. And I'm like, oh, I was horrified. It's like, no, 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 that's not right. My textbook says so. <laughs> and then just like really like getting more comfortable with that and, and learning the intricacies of it. And um, oh, you said something and I, I wanted to say, oh, oh, um, these safe swallow precautions and stuff like that. Let's talk about 90-90-90 because I have such a love hate with this 90-90-90, you know, the hip flexion and upright and feet on the floor and everything. It is just not appropriate for everybody. Yeah. It's not. I've I've seen people with severe kyphosis and they have such significant interior loss of the bolus that if I'm really moving their wheelchair to achieve this 90-90-90, like their meals on the floor. That's not fair. That is not a, a, that's, that's more restrictive. I'm eliminating the opportunity for them to become nourished. So, you know, being in a setting where you can co-evaluate or at least closely work with PT and OT about better approximating positions for someone. And when you take someone for a swallow assessment, you know, working with a team that understands that complexity. Hey, can we try the, the wheelchair at a 30 degree tilt? Can we try this? Can we try that? And I, I was so fortunate to, you know, send to a hospital where they just understood it. They just understood the complexity and they're like, and even the radiologist would chime in. I'm like, Oh my God, this is amazing. They're like, Oh, why don't you try move the chair this way? Or let's see what it's like with the feet down, you know, understanding how that changes the rest of the body posture. And yeah, the 90, 90, 90. And then I think like culturally too, doesn't that seem kind of one-sided? Like I love, I love food just like, not just dysphagia, just like anything to do with food. I watch a lot of travel shows, um, documentaries and things like that. And just how people eat around the world is very different. There are some foods and some places and certain types of cuisines that maybe encourage a chin down posture, depending on what your type what you're eating. If you're slurping a huge bowl of noodles, you're not upright. The noodles will be down your shirt. You're, you know, head over the bowl and like slurping like massive amounts of delicious noodles, maybe even swallowing them whole, which like my text right. say is a problem and <laughs> right, you should right. be NPO. So I just think like we, we grasp at having these standards because it can make life easier as a Make us comfy yeah. Yeah. in our comfort zone. Yeah. Putting our little pegs in the, the correct shaped holes. Um, but then someone like hands you a watermelon and you're like, well, right. <laughs> I just have to build a new board because it's just not going to fit. Um, yeah. So I, I think even the 90, 90, 90 and like posture during eating and stuff is like uh, a, a topic of exploration. And I would love to know if anybody's researching that. Not even in our field, if it's looked at in anthropology or sociology, just. Yeah, that, that's such a great, a great point too, Jen. And I know, you know, that's part of the reality of getting a lot of these swallow studies done is, you know, a lot of these fluoro suites don't allow for that sort of flexibility or manipulation or, and I was super grateful that, you know, the, the place that luckily I know people around here, wonderful <laughs> SLPs <laughs> and they were like, go to this hospital, see this SLP. And they were wonderful. Maybe, maybe I'll have to bring them on, on on the podcast to talk to. Yeah, but definitely. I mean, this was like, it was like the biggest radiology suite I'd ever seen. Like I sat in the chair, I had my son like on my lap, our wonderful SLP was feeding him, but there was, there was all this room for him to, to eat how he eats. The, the only funny thing was that 
the screen was to our left and he kept wanting to see it. So he would move. And and so I would try to use my hand, like nobody keep your head this way. And then like my ring and my watch would be in the, I'm like, Oh my God. But like, literally that was the only issue we had other than that. Like this floral suite was a dream and the sea arm was a dream. And we were able to get just a really good study in sort of his normal positioning, which I just think of so many other settings that I've seen and, and he you can't do that. Yeah. yeah. They don't have, they have those rigid chairs and things like that. Like, and it really makes you think like we use this term objective study more quote unquote objective studies. <laughs> and what does that really mean? Because it's not, I, I don't like that. I'll say instrumental. I won't say objective because one, how you conduct the test feeding is something that's social that has social and environmental influences so that's not really like objective because you're not truly there you're trying to closely approximate the natural environment but it's very difficult looks like i tell people it looks like being abducted by aliens like if you were the person getting the swallow study there's just no two ways about it everyone's wearing these strange spacesuits and no one else is eating (laughs) and they're putting this white stuff in front of you with a huge like screen around you and thing that's making noise it's unusual. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what, what is objective about something that every swallow study is conducted differently, different equipment, different barriers, different food, different therapists, you know, maybe someone's in a bad mood that day and this person's like, oh, I'm just going to eat really quick and get out. But also the interpretation of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, let's say you could, you could have the same swallow report, swallow video and show it to different therapists and they interpret it differently. And that's kind of, scary. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's kind of, kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think what was so interesting about, you know, my son's study was it was me, his SLP, the SLP doing the study. And then also the DOR at the hospital was an SLP also. So there was like four SLP brains, you know, but I was like, take me out of this. You like, I'm a yeah. mom, you guys, like, I don't want to, <laughs> what, what I love about the SLP that did this study was, you know, she just sort of asked me, you know, what, what am I hoping to see? What are my goals? What do I, you know, is there anything specifically I want written in the report? And I just said, all I'm begging you is that no matter what you see, like, please don't write these blanket recommendations without talking to me first, because exactly what I, and, and I was saying that coming from a place of what I went through with my brother. Like if, if, if this study goes horribly wrong, please don't write on there like NPO or please don't write like puree with honey thick, you know, something like that. And, and have that sent to the school and have our whole lives slipped upside down, you know, and she's like, Oh, I, w- I would never do that. Um, so I was super grateful for that. And literally that was my only like request. I was like, if it's that horrible, like let's please have a meeting of the minds and have everybody get on the same page. Uh, like, uh, you know, of course I, I just was imagining the worst and thinking, thinking the worst, but luckily none of that came to fruition. Way, <laughs> it's kind of a good way to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just, it was, it was, couldn't have been any smoother and, and, and they were so wonderful of, with how it all went. But yeah, I just, there's, there's so much to be said about just taking the patient just as an individual person and and really learning a lot more about what surrounds their mealtime activities than just the specific swallow at that moment in time. Because like you said, especially for this population, that this is such a foreign concept to them. This is, you know, if they don't have the cognitive capacity to understand what is going on, this is so far out of their comfort zone. And this is something so strange that the results might be totally not accurate of how they normally eat at all. So there's just so much to, which is interesting because as someone who's done swallow studies for so long, I feel like I used to always argue that point, like, no, we're going to get a really accurate study, but there's a, there's a difference between getting an accurate study and getting a study that really, really encompasses what their normal looks like. And, And I think we have to, as SLPs, be smart about marrying the two. Yeah, I think, you know, studies like that where the treating SLP and the hospital SLP, like everyone can be together. I mean, it's just like the happy, lovely summer camp that everybody hopes for. (laughs) And I, and I had that too. And it was just, it was so good. Like it just, I could walk in and they were ready and they'd always have a student or, or someone else. And I was the feeder. I was there. And then the hospital SLPs were working closely with their radiologists looking at the positioning and like, we just worked together like a well-oiled machine and there was no ego was not in the room. And I think that is so important for healthcare. Yes. And I think it's so, it's important for learning because if one person in the room has information that another person doesn't have, and it's not because one's smarter or 
not smart. Like it's one, the, they just know the, the client better or the patient better. One doesn't, but they have a lot of hospital experience and a lot of fluoro experience. So they know what certain things look like. Those two people have to share that information with each other because that's going to like achieve this, get closer to this goal of understanding this, this picture of this unique individual put in a unique testing site. And I think I feel very strongly about, you know, when I see ego rear its head in certain settings and I'm just very sensitive to that. Like my, like my dad's a doctor and I have learned just so much from him. And now I work more closely with him. I've been the speech pathologist to his patients on, on many occasions. Um, now I work, I'm doing administrative work in his practice and he has no ego. I've known this about him my whole life, but now just understanding what that means more. And I think especially with COVID seeing how ego and politics and healthcare can really shape the outcome of many, many, many people's lives. Like, for example, one day he's like, oh, um, I have a patient with such and such super rare GI stomach thing. Um, Dr. So-and-so does a special procedure for that. Can you call his office? I want to go observe him when next time he operates on such and such patient. Okay. First off, he's going to take his free time that he doesn't have to go observe a thing just to learn. He's not even going to, he doesn't have the instruments. He's not going to go do this. He just wants to learn. I Google the doctor. The doctor's like my age. I'm like, you know, I'm like, I mean, I know my dad. I know he's like that, but I'm just, I, I admire that so much. And just, it's not about, I have more experience than you, or I've been doing this for years. So something it's like, Hey, you do a thing that I want to learn about. And I do this other thing. And maybe I can show you what I do, but I really want to learn what you do. Cause that's very specialized. And you went to school recently where they taught you how to use these, but you totally can tell. I know exactly what I'm talking about here. Um, you know, where you use these special tools for the special procedure, and I just, I, I, I was just very proud. And, I, and I'm like, I'm glad that I had that in my upbringing and I had that in my education. That's, you will never get to the point where you know everything. Um, you should always be comfortable asking questions and wanting to team up with other people that have the other parts of the puzzle. You're never going to have like the whole, you're never going to have every piece. You have to find, connect with, with people. And that's why even though social media, I'm not great at it. I'm very thankful for it because you can very quickly find like, Oh, this person, they specialize in head and neck cancer. And like, Oh, this person, and then you can kind of connect and, and learn a lot more that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that, Jen. I, yeah, I love everything you just said about that. So thank you. And that, that's wonderful that you've had your, your dad to look up to in that sense of, of really what a doctor or a medical professional should act like, you know, I mean, the reality is I think so many of us would love to go observe other, other clinicians or other doctors and how they do things. And, and, you know, sometimes it is an ego hit. Sometimes it is like crap, you know, they do it way better than I do, or they know so much more, but you know, if we can just flip, flip the script and take it as a learning experience and not an ego hit, I think our field would be so much better. He navigates things with such an ease that I've seen people half his age struggle with. And not the clinical expertise, not that. Just how do you ask a question about something when you're like, oh, I'm in a position, I'm supposed to know this. And if I ask, people are going to know that I don't know. And I'm embarrassed about that. And it's like, but you know what? You're trying to learn. And nobody knows everything. Like I, I tell people, like grad school is a buffet. It's not an eight-course meal on a very esoteric theme. It's a buffet. You get a little sampling of everything. If you're even lucky, sometimes you don't make it to the end and you don't get to try the dessert. Right. Like, so you had a placement, you had two things of Milo for or school placements or whatever. Like you just, you know, you graduate with what you graduate with. They, the programs do an amazing job, but they, they try to accommodate so much and our field has grown so much and there's, you can't get exposed to everything. Yep. You know, and just being in an environment where you can learn. I feel like, you know, the the context for me talking about like, you know, working in that setting where I had to really challenge a lot of conventions and and paradigms that I had learned in the field. Um, I have to give a shout out to my amazing mother-in-law, Kara, who is also a speech pathologist. And I, and I worked with at that job 
Because so just to clarify, Jen, you're an SLP, your husband's an SLP, and your mother-in-law is an yes, SLP as well. We just, okay. we're just, well, a, they, a, we are, our own, we are our own collective. Yeah, yeah, I love it. <laughs> and um, just to work with someone who, very similar to my dad, has been in it for a long time and could always say, well, I've been doing this for so many years, and never once did that. Was always interested in, in you know, learning something new. And I mean, I... I feel bad because I went in guns blazing EBP. I have this article. I have this article. But that poor printer didn't know what to do with me because <laughs> it was just like shooting out papers every day. And I've always been told like in a lot of like settings that I've been in in school, like in class, like you're too much. Like just you too many questions. Just, just like put your hand down. Just stop. Like it's too much. And to be in an environment and have a coworker who was like, that's super interesting. Could you email that to me? Or like, I'd love to learn more when she has such experience and I, I learned so much from her, but you know, I came to her with so many crazy ideas and unconventional things and just always so supportive that I did feel like I could ask questions in that environment and, and learn more from her where I think another person would let ego get in the way and, and be like, well, this is the way we do it. And this is the way it's always been done. So stop, put your hand down, relax, here's the assessment. This is what we do. And like together we like added a bunch of things and we, we changed a lot of how we documented and did it collaboratively. And I, I'm so thankful for that. And I mean, I really came to like, really, when I say crazy, like really, I was like, I'm turning the rec room into a pirate ship um, in a few months. And she's like, okay, how can I help? You know, <laughs> just I like, love it. I don't want anyone to ever tell you you're too much because I just yeah. love everything that you're, you're passionate, Jen. I think there's a very fine line between people thinking people are too much and being passionate and you're, you're 100% passionate. And, yeah. you know, I've always loved your, loved your passion for wanting to help this population. And well, thank yeah. you. Yes. It's good don't to surround yourself being, with people. Yeah, like don't that. stop yeah. being you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to just talk a little bit about, cause I, in the beginning, I loved what you were saying about, you know, different questions that you should ask and different counseling skills. And it just got me thinking like, oh gosh, Jen, I wish you could put together some sort of like protocol for, you know, how like interviewing skills or something like this for this population. And then I see that you shared this research article here and, and I think it's going to go somewhere along you know, the lines oh, of what yeah, I'm thinking. It it's got a long title and I never remember the whole title. I know it starts with validation. I can, I can read it. So validation. Yeah, you can read it. <laughs> so the article that you, that you wanted us to check out is validation of the choking risk assessment and pneumonia risk assessment for adults with intellectual and developmental disability. Yes. It's a mouthful. So also taking a look at the authors. I don't know if you want to read the authors, if you have it in front of you, but you have this huge team of clinicians from very different backgrounds with specialty in respiration and reflex and looking, looking at the cough reflex and what, what is coughing? We look at swallowing, but what is coughing? And people who specialize in adults with developmental disabilities. And you have this amazing team of people that took a very close look at this population um, without this, trying to fit it into how we measure a typically developed population and to create a risk assessment tool. Like, okay, we know choking is a huge risk. The the stats for choking in this population are unfortunately very high. And, you know, more so than aspiration, I, I would argue that choking is more preventable than aspiration. We talked about functional aspiration and how someone could be aspirating with really no consequences. Is that worth all the time and energy to change this person's whole life to try and prevent something that we won't really know how successful we are because they're not under fluoro or with the scope of their nose 24 hours. But choking is very severe, very traumatic, and can be instantly fatal. So I, I really appreciate that the author spent time to look at that topic and to develop a risk assessment. Well, it's very easy to use. There's like 10 points um, or 10 things to look at. And it is different than what we would look at uh, the, the Langmore aspiration factors that people are more familiar with. So yeah, just having a resource like that and then having that kind of justice league, you know, wonderful researchers in on it. It makes it a really great resource. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. I know. I, I, I love this. I love this. And I think this combined with, sort of just digging into your old school counseling skills and really learning more about the patient's mealtime, I think is really a great 
way to get started working with, with this population. Obviously there's way more nuance than just that, but I think these are, these are some very good starting points. So thank you for sharing that, Jen. Yeah, my pleasure. You said you wanted to chat about Allie and George. Oh, Allie and George are wonderful. Allie and George at Feasible Solutions. Shout out. Um, so I've taken over as office manager at my dad's private practice. He's a gastroenterologist and primary care physician. And even though it's a pandemic and it's crazy, and I was like, I'm just going to help, you know, just do what I need to do to help him while doing my speech pathology separately in isolation from that. I totally didn't stick by that. And I was like, <laughs> I was you know, speaking with George uh, separately from my own, you know, fees education. Then we had a case come up and I'm like, <sighs> I ended up taking the phone call from the home health SLP who said, oh, you know, um, would like Dr. Beter to order a small city. I was like, Jen, don't say anything. You're too much. Just like step back. And I was like, hi, I'm Jen. You know? <laughs> I said, you know, actually, uh, if you don't mind elaborating on, on your specific concerns, I've actually been in touch with a, uh, an endoscopist and might be something we could bring into the office. And Teresa, the fees gods like just looked favorably Yay. upon us. The stars aligned. We got a fees in the office. My dad was so jazzed Amazing. about it. So excited. Allie came to scope. Amazing outcome for the patient. So good. Could not have been better. The caregiver education that took place, just the time it took. He needed a long study. We had quite, we had major questions about secretion management and tissue integrity. So fees was clinically just like the right choice for him. We're able to do it as part of his physical exam with the doctor. I mean, it was just like, oh, it was so good. And then we did another one that was awesome. And I, it was just, yeah, so I totally didn't isolate myself from the practice at all. I wasn't able to. I'm thankful I didn't. The patients are thankful. My dad is thankful. So I'll be doing more of my own fees training coming up in the spring and, you know, potentially scoping outpatient um, and helping really address those needs. Uh, you know, we've had someone who is the neurologist was like hospice, MPL, da, 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 da. and Allie was like, eat whatever you yeah. want. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and plenty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, just great. Um, it, at this study, I was so nervous. It was like, man, if clinically these are not good outcomes, it's gonna like, you know, that, that ego voice that is not helpful at all. Cause that is the right thing to do to get an instrumental. But I was like, Oh, but if it's bad, then it's gonna be like my fault. I opened this can of worms. Da, da, da. No, it was, it was great collaboratively, professionally and clinically. And the patient is doing very well. Well, and I think, I think the key, the, I think the key term that you said here, Jen, is interprofessional because I think there were so many, so many brains involved. If it wasn't the right decision, someone would have spoken up, you know, and, and like you said, you know, sometimes our ego is like, Oh, we, we got to do this. We got to get this done. But the reality is most times it's right, you know, and, and I think, you know, having these conversations with other, with other SLPs, other professions too, that'll say, you know, oh, maybe we should try this or maybe we should try that. And and everybody just being open to having these conversations and not being afraid if they, if we decide that what we thought was best, maybe isn't the best in the big picture for this patient. Yeah, so it was, it was amazing. And, and their practice is very much about you know, they acknowledge the context that patients are in and what's their environment and what's the relationship with the caregiver. So um, it was just absolutely a pleasure to just bring that, you know, that style in, you know, and, and have someone who feels that way that my dad feels as a, as a physician and that I feel as an office manager slash consulting SLP. So really we were like all on the same page. And, and the caregiver said that the patient's wife was like, so it seems like, you know, if we needed to, we could do this again. Right. And I was just like, perfect. That is exactly. And that, that brief comment, this woman understands what we try to achieve here. She gets it. This is not like a static thing. There's a, a potential, like a progressive issue. We can reassess. It's a safe test. He was okay. He was comfortable. There was no, Oh my God, we saw this. Ah, like sound the alarm. So just to have her that that brief comment like stuck with me. I'm like, oh, she gets it. She gets it. She gets where we're coming from and why why I drove her crazy about scheduling and all that. And and that was just yeah, it was just a great great experience. Yeah, good, awesome. I love this. Well, thank you so much, Jen. This has been such a great conversation. Yeah, Obviously, near and dear to my heart, but yeah. so many things to consider and. 
you know, I, I know we have this, this is unfortunately such an underserved population and, and so many SLPs just really don't know where to start with a lot of these patients. And we don't have a lot of research either because it's very hard to group a lot of these patients into one yes, research study because yeah. they're also different. And they're systematically so. excluded from a lot of our research, but that's yes. another story. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Inclusion yeah. in research is difficult. It's another yeah total total side tangent, yeah. <laughs> but I got hooked up with this genetics research team basically that wanted to research me and my son and uh, what a long story short they just constantly kept reaching out to me like you know to have my son included in these studies and I think after like the seventh one that they said no he doesn't or he he meets the exclusion criteria I was like please stop calling then like I don't understand what like you know what conditions he has like please stop calling like. <laughs> But on the other hand, like I, I was so annoyed because it's like we need to get more research on these kids, but they are all so different. So I, I don't have the answers. I'm I'm just I'm complaining with no solution, but um, <laughs> I, I don't know what the answer is. It just stinks that we don't have any more answers. So I think also what's hard is like clinically, like we see something and we want to be able to label it and say this happened because of this. Like I was talking about the anterior transit. It, AP transit the bolus for that one, you know, these idiosyncratic behaviors. And, you know, I, I grew up reading, I love Oliver Sacks. I, I, he's the only celebrity's passing that I've ever mourned, famous neurologist. And his case studies are just very descriptive. And yes, there's, there's interpretive medical information too, but just letting the person be themselves. And I'm going to paint you a picture of what that person is doing, what they look like and what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are, not just, this is impaired, this is impaired, this is impaired, this is impaired. And case we have case studies are very valuable. And, you know, EBP involves all sorts of evidence and using your clinical judgment and using the caregiver's judgment. And, you know, the caregivers that care for multiple different adults with developmental disabilities have their own way of talking about that population and making comparisons. So they might use someone as a metric for another person that they both have a similar disability and, you know, they're not using terms of anatomy or physiology, but you're still listening and observing the person and learning. Oh, maybe they're talking about this. Like they're describing it one way. They're talking about the food, but I kind of see some differences in oral motor patterns. And maybe this is an area we should look into. Um, I think just being a sponge and kind of taking in all that information, but I, I case studies are hard. They're hard to do. They're hard to write and people feel like, oh, I can't use this. And it's like, yeah, yeah. you can, yeah. you can. It's just how you use it. You can't copy everything necessarily, but you're also like, I, I remember in grad school, I, I um, was at outpatient neuro rehab clinic and we had a patient who had diffuse brain injury. There was nothing focal. There wasn't a stroke. It was an anoxic event or something like that. But his presentation was very right hemisphere damage. But I'm like, well, I'm supposed to do treatment based on diffuse, blah, 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 blah. But I kept saying to my supervisor, I'm like, but he's presenting like all his, all his difficulties, what he's struggling with is very right hemisphere. He's just like, treat right hemisphere. I mean, like, you gotta treat what he's needs treatment on. It doesn't matter that his presentation doesn't match what his, you know, CT scan says or whatever. Like, you, you have to deal with how the patient is coming to you, not necessarily what the chart says they should look like, which a lot of these patients, if you read the chart first, you just be like, how are they alive? Like they have so many things going on. They had so many surgeries, like, and then you meet them and you're like, Oh my gosh, you're you're great. Why am I here? You're fine. You don't need me. Which I think it's interesting. You said that because I feel like my son is, is the opposite. If you just look at his chart, he's happy, healthy, yeah. And then you look at him and you're like, oh, he's nonverbal. He's non-ambulatory. He, you know, has trouble feeding. So it's, it's so, yeah, you just, you got to get to know the person. And of course there's information we need in the chart, but yeah. Yeah. It's just that it's information. It's, it's how you use it. And, and do you let it create a picture too quickly rather than just help inform the picture that you are creating with when you do assess the person? Yeah. Cause if you go in and you think like, oh, I know what this is going to be you've already blocked out, you know, potential for learning for yourself. If you go and be like, all right, I know this stuff. I might forget it 30 seconds and I know this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jen. I love everything, everything you said and 
yeah. Any, any final thoughts? Keep chucking. This is awesome. Awesome. These, these podcasts, I know reach a lot of people in their cars and in their home and they're trying to learn more. And it's just, it's okay to ask questions and then learn no matter how many years you've been in practice, no matter where you've learned and just, just keep checking. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jen. Appreciate you. Thank you. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.